Hey, Mercer Road, happy Thanksgiving. How are we feeling? Is everyone full of pumpkin pie? Oh, you bunch of turkeys, you. That's awesome. We, uh, my wife and I went down to her parents' lake house in Kentucky, and uh, my mother-in-law made the best scratch pumpkin pie I've ever had in my entire life. It was, a, the base was maple syrup. So for any of you cooks out there or bakers or whatever, I don't do any of that. But like if, maple syrup base, that's the way to go. So try it out. It's really, really good. Um, if you are new or you're a visitor, maybe you are here visiting with your family and they drug you to church, welcome. We are so, so glad you are here. This is a very special place and you've come at a very exciting time at Mercy Road as we are uh, starting four additional Mercy Road churches over the next several years. Yeah, give it a round of applause. That's actually a really big deal. We're really excited for that. We think God's got a big, big mission for Mercy Road, and we want to step into it. So it's a lot of fun. If you don't know me, my name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. Uh, Josh and the family are in California getting a little bit of time away, and so you're stuck with me. So it'll be, we'll have a lot of fun. So I'm looking forward to closing out this series. Let's do this. Let's uh, have let you open up your phones. And if you would, please share this live stream on Facebook with your friends. It's amazing how this tool of our time can make such an impact. I realize that everyone we're trying to reach is already online. So, uh, you know, sharing this is actually a really big deal. Let's also welcome those who are joining us on the interwebs because the interwebs rock. And we love you too. And thanks for joining us online. We hope you hear from God this morning as well. So pray with me, and we'll open up God's word. Sound good? Jesus, we love you. Thank you so much for all that you've done in our lives. Thank you for our families, and thank you for pumpkin pie made out of maple syrup. And thank you for this church, and thank you for all the churches in this city. Thank you for your sacrifice, Lord, and that we get to know you, Father, because of your son, Jesus. And what a privilege, and what an amazing thought it is to get to know the God of the universe. And we love you. And I pray right now that if anyone's heart here this morning is far from you, God, would you draw them close to yourself? Pray that if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know you, you'd make yourself known to them. Ultimately, God, we pray that you would use your word, use me as a basic tool, nothing more, to communicate your powerful truths and what it means uh, for us today as a church body. We love you, and together the church said... Amen. So as I was prepping for uh, this weekend, uh, I realized of the times I've preached on the weekend, I don't know that I've ever actually shared my conversion story, my, my story of salvation. And so I thought I'd tell you that um, I, I, think, I think that when I was in my mom's womb, she put like the big like headphone track like on her belly and it was like pumping Jesus like into the womb when I was just a little one. And I, I literally, all I can remember is growing up in the pews and like picking my boogers and making a collection on the pew in church. I had like my micro machines and my matchbox cars and church was great. It was like playtime, right? I, I think it was five or I was six years old and I had just left Sunday school and my mom goes, Luke, what'd you learn in Sunday school? And I'm like, I kissed a girl on the cheek. And she was like, what? And I'm like, yeah, Sunday school is awesome. And uh, she was like, we have got to find a new children's program. <laughs> and so we changed churches. We moved to a different church here in town. I actually grew up in a church just down the road. And I can tell you this. I depended and leaned on my parents' faith the entire time. I did not make Jesus my personal savior until I was about 17. When the youth group and the youth pastor took us to a winter getaway to Seven Springs, Pennsylvania, where we went on a snowboarding trip. And it was really snowy and cold and up in the woods, and it was just amazing. And there was something about what the communicator said about the gospel that made sense to me for the very first time ever. And it clicked. 
And I placed my trust in Jesus that night when I was 17. And I remember specifically leaving service, and I walked out into the woods full of snow, and I dropped to my knees, and I said, wow, that's cold. But then I said, Jesus, I trust you. And my life changed. It was amazing. My life changed. I realized that I had put all the trust in myself and none of the trust in Jesus, and I was just plain church. I call it listianity instead of Christianity, right? Listianity is like you got a long list here, right? And the list of like checking off the boxes, right? I go to church at least twice a month, you know, don't cheat on my spouse, pay taxes, hopefully, and then a bunch of other stuff as long as I look the part, right? And that's what we get ourselves caught up into. Because we get ourselves caught up into playing church and looking the part. And that's what happened to me. That's what happened to me when I was like 16 or 17. And then I gave my life to Christ. And I rode that spiritual wave. You know, we take teenagers to Florida every summer for a summer camp. We had 32 baptisms last summer. And what happens is that teenagers ride that spiritual wave. But guess what happens? That wave crests. And it dies out. So what we teach them is like, hey, you know, what you feed grows, what you starve dies. Feed your faith. It will continue to grow. And that's what I didn't know when I was 17. So I gave my life to Christ, and I put my trust in Christ, and guess what? That wave crested. And I just kind of went back to plain church, going through the motions, looking the part, but not really following Jesus. I didn't know. I didn't know what it would cost to follow Christ until I was about 20. I was working at a camp down in, in southern Indiana, a Christian summer camp, and I heard my call to ministry, the call in my life, and I realized that, wow, the cost following Jesus was not what I thought it was. I thought this would be comfortable, predictable, convenient. It was not. And I remember very specifically Jesus saying, you're going to serve me your whole life. And that was my call. And as I grew up and as I matured, I'm just like you. We're all trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus. And so for over the next decade, I was, I was learning, right? Learning what it meant to, to deny myself and to, to follow Jesus and to lose my life. Like, what did that mean? What was the cost? And that is the question I aim to answer here this morning is, what will it cost to follow Jesus? Because I'm certain that there are people here this morning that are just like me, just going through the motions, Playing church, checking off the box. As long as I look the part, I'm good to go. Just skate by. Don't, I'm not too bad, just a little bit of bad. Just not too bad that anybody would notice. That's what I got caught up into. I still fight that today. I don't know anybody that doesn't. But I think that when we consult God's word, what we see is an entirely different ask from Jesus that doesn't really look anything like playing church. It doesn't look like anything like checking off boxes or listianity, if you will. It's completely and entirely different. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray, and we're going to consult God's word and see how he will instruct us through the morning. Sound good? Pray with me. Jesus, we pray that your word would do its job and not return void in our hearts. Use it powerfully to get us in the right direction, Jesus. We want to be all in for you. We love you, Christ. Amen. This is Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 21. It'll be on the screens Uh, This is the word of God. This is what it says. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. 
You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Wow, harsh words from Jesus, would you say? I mean, my goodness, Peter was one of Jesus' best pals. And just a few verses before, Peter was called the stone and blessed and that Jesus would build his church on Peter. And then he just got called Satan. I mean, can you imagine if, like, you were like, you know, you're telling your friend, like, hey, your, your friends are, or, uh, excuse me, your kids are kind of acting up or out, of, out of control. Shut up, Satan. Like, that would be, a, I would be like, unfriend right now. We are not friends anymore. I just got called Satan. That doesn't work for me. But that's just what Jesus did. It's almost like, wow, Jesus, sometimes I think that we think that he's like this, Yes, he's our savior, but he's also our king, and we take our marching orders from him. And what I see in this passage is Jesus being like, nothing is going to get in the way of me fulfilling my mission. Because what that phrase, get behind me Satan, appropriates is the moment he said that to the enemy when he was in the wilderness for 40 years being tested before his ministry. So Jesus is like, no, no one is getting in my way. I came to fulfill this mission, and I intend to fulfill that mission. And so he gets real harsh with Peter as Peter tries to, you know, Peter had the faith to say, yeah, you're the son of God. But he didn't have the faith to say, no, you, you should not have to suffer and die. Are you kidding me? You're Jesus. Jesus is like, you don't get it. And then Jesus does the unthinkable. He takes that awkward moment with Peter and uses it as an object lesson for the rest of the disciples. He's like, get behind me, Satan. You guys see that awkward moment? Now, listen, if you're going to follow me, you're going to deny yourself completely and entirely, lose your life. That's what it's going to mean. That's what it means. That's what Jesus is saying to his disciples, to you and to me. Really, what Jesus does is he offers two approaches to life. Here on the screen, you'll see two columns. And on the right, what you'll see is typically what uh, the world and what you and I think our life is really all about, right? We live for ourselves, we ignore the cross, we follow the world, attempting to save our own life, to gain the world, but we might lose our soul and we might lose Christ's reward. But Jesus offers the second approach to life when he says, actually, I want you to deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me, lose your life, forsake the world so you can keep your soul and share in my reward. It's backwards. It's totally upside down. It doesn't make any sense. Lose my life? What are you talking about? I've worked very hard to preserve my life. What was Peter's mistake? You see, Peter was just simply thinking like a man. He doesn't want to have to, he doesn't voluntarily embrace suffering. He doesn't voluntarily embrace pain. He avoids it. I do that too. I would think that you would do that as well. We didn't have the things of God in mind. Peter did not have the things of God in mind. He had his own concerns in mind. Shield yourself from suffering and pain. Don't do that, Jesus. He didn't see the mission. He couldn't see past his feelings. His feelings needed to catch up, but they weren't. They were behind. You see, I think that what we um, have gotten ourselves into church is this idea of taking up our cross and what it really means. We have settled for this idea that taking up your cross or the burden of the cross means that you carry some burden in life. 
For example, I've, I've heard someone say, I've got chronic asthma, it's my cross to bear. It's like, well, I don't think that's what taking up the cross means, right? Actually, Jesus came to heal the sick, amen? It's not like Jesus came on the scene and said, hey, I can heal. I'm not going to, though. Peace. <laughs> like, he's not going to gloat that he can heal and not heal. Jesus frequently heals. Doesn't always, but frequently he does heal. So I would say that if you've got a burden, an ailment, a physical ailment, I hope that Jesus heals that, but that is not what it means to take up your cross. See, taking up your cross means taking up the mission that Jesus took up. It means completely and entirely aligning yourself with Christ's death, resurrection, and reign. You see, Jesus had to go to the cross to fulfill his mission. You and I take up the cross to fulfill ours, right? It glosses Romans 12.1 12, as the scripture says, Therefore I urge you, bros, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Church, Christ was our literal sacrifice. You and I are the living sacrifice. Christ was the literal one. You and I are the living one. It's so important to remember that because that's what it means to take up our cross, is to abandon all of our small dreams to adopt God's bigger ones. It means giving up all of our projects that had nothing to do with God's kingdom and saying, eh, that's small potatoes to compare to what God's got planned for me, my family, and my local church. I'm going to get involved. I'm going to get behind that. That's what it means to take up your cross, to fully identify yourself with Christ. But, church, we are like Peter. <laughs> the problem is, is that we really like things comfortable, convenient, predictable. We don't want to get out of sight of that comfort zone. We like playing church. We like Christianity because there's not as much sacrifice. We don't have to lose our life. I want to show you a video of someone in our church. Her name is Jillian Maitland. Uh, she's pretty consistently part of our worship team. She actually helped plant Mercy Road. She's married to the famous Eric Maitland, sometimes infamous Eric Maitland, you know, the blonde-haired, green-eyed heartthrob that leads worship up here. Uh, you know him. Anyways, she's married to him, and this is her story. And I think the temptation in this story is to make it all about drugs and alcohol, but I think that when you hear her story, you'll see that those are symptoms to someone who had not entirely lost her life to Christ yet. So let's listen in. I can remember vividly multiple nights uh, being high laying in my bed and crying myself to sleep because I just I just wanted it to stop I was molested by a family member when I was about seven years old and I carried that weight and that shame with me all through my childhood and that was the start of me using drugs I started when I was um, 14 years old. Um, there was a kid that lived down the street that was friends with my older brother who was already using, and um, Matt wanted to get high, and so I wanted to do that too. And so we sat in our driveway in our neighborhood and got high as a kite. You know, I grew up in church. I grew up at Castleton United Methodist, just here in town. And I remember just feeling like a, a, an invisible kid walking around, walking around and no one cared about me or who I was or what my story was or my shame or my problems. 
And smoking weed was just the beginning of it for me, and smoking cigarettes. And that would just get me through the week. I was always high. I don't think I really ever went to school sober when I was in high school. And I would skip out of class a lot. And I would I would use during the week and then on the weekend was like party time. Let's ramp this up. Let's do whatever we can. Let's get whatever we want. Let's, you know, what do you want to do this week? Let's go take some acid. You know, let's let's take some ecstasy. Let's let's go eat some mushrooms. Let's, you know, I loved that psychedelic high of just going into another, I don't know, dimension, I guess, if you will. And I just wanted the pain to stop. And my parents, they didn't have a good relationship and I could see that. I just wanted it all to stop. And I remember thinking of, um, you know, suicidal things and, and then in the meantime, just getting high, making it stop, going to bed at night and crying myself to sleep and saying, Lord, I just, if you're there, if you'll just take this from me, I'll do whatever you want, anything, I'll do whatever you want. And I did that night after night, year after year. My brother had gotten sober. He had gotten arrested for something, and um, that was his road to recovery, um, was through Narcotics Anonymous and him getting sober. He, uh, at some point in time in there, became a Christian as well. We mean, we'd grown up in it, so it wasn't really anything new, but he was a different person. My entire life, my older brother um, was kind of that antagonist, and he was this, this person that I loved all of a sudden, that I could hang out with, who loved me, I really felt like he did, and he was just a new person, and I thought, well, well, if Matt is as changed, maybe something will work for me. We went to Common Ground Christian Church in Broderpool because they had a 7 p.m. Sunday night service, and so it meant I didn't have to get up early, and so we went, and we were late, and I sat in the back, I listened to this pastor talk about the Christian riding the fence. I don't remember what scripture that is, but all of a sudden those prayers that I had laid in my bed late at night saying, Lord, if you just take this from me, I'll do whatever you want. That happened that day, that night in that church. He saved me. He healed me from a drug addiction, just like that. I sat there and I said, yes, I will, I will do this. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. I'm sitting here in this room with these people that I don't know. And he took it, he took the pain. When I left the church that day, um, I was completely healed. I, I didn't have that drive I guess, I don't even know if it was a drive, it was just this need for drugs, need for attention, need for anything, you just put a band-aid over that pain and it, it was all gone, it was gone. And I didn't know what to do with it. And I remember going home and, you know, continuing to pray like, Lord, um, 
I, I want to stay sober. I want this to work this time because I had tried so many times and just couldn't stay sober. Um, I made the decision to call my two best friends and just tell them, you know, I, I just can't, I need to stay sober and I just can't hang out with you guys for a couple of months um, so that I can stay clean. No offense to you guys. I love you so much, but I just I can't hang out. And then, of course, they thought I had joined a cult and just, I don't know, they didn't understand any of it. And it was just so painful for me that my community was gone, my friends were gone, everything was gone in an instant. And when I finally didn't have any more community left, I was reading my Bible one night and I was reading in Matthew and I read, came across a verse that said, whoever keeps their life for themselves will lose it, but whoever gives their life for my sake, I will give it back to you. And he gave it all back to me. It was Matthew 16, 25. And the next day was different. He gave me my community back. He started introducing me to new people I started going to church more, and and I met my husband. My brother brought this cute boy home one weekend to hang out, and I wasn't looking for a blonde-haired, green-eyed boy, but there he was, and I was really in love instantly. And I knew he was going to India with my brother, and um, I really wanted him to like me. And up until then, I was, I would have been considered um, really promiscuous. And so I just didn't think that he would want anything to do with me. And I remember going home again another night and laying in my bed and saying, praying and crying out to the Lord, saying he wouldn't want me. Why would he want me? And he said, well, yes, he does. And he is yours. And you're going to get married one day. And we got married within a year of him being back from India. And we started on this road, this crazy journey of music and ministry and missions and working with drug addicts and working with kids and people that were me. Um, that we could just, everything the Lord had given to me, I could give it back to them, and I could love them and care for them. And to introduce them to Jesus, and that's the greatest life. When the economy crashed, we couldn't um, do all the national traveling like we used to do. We had to stay stateside, and I got really depressed, and he got really lonely, and we just got really burnt out for several years. And then one day we had a call from some guy named Josh Hoosman who wants to start a church in Carmel. And, um, hey, will you be our worship leaders? <laughs> okay. <laughs> sure, Josh. We don't know who you are, but we'll try to do that. And you know what? It was the best thing for us because we just didn't have any community anymore at that point. And um, we just really clicked with Josh and Lisa's vision for the church. I didn't have to be, like, I didn't have to fit into the Christian girl mold. I could just be me, and um, and that's how this church is. It's, we can be us. We can be who we are, right where we are, just how we look, 
just how we want to be. And um, it has taken us on an, an incredible journey with the most recent things that we're doing with our story, our time, and the opioid epidemic, and going around the state of Indiana, we're able to still use this Mercy Road community to kind of come with us, and our outposts has come with us, and we've done Mercy Fest. It just, it's so exciting for us to just have an atmosphere and have a church that loves us and sends us out and takes us right where we are, and they want to come with us, and we want to come with them, and um, it's just the best. Can we thank Jillian Maitland? Thank you, Jillian. God took Jillian's mess and turned it into a masterpiece, amen? And when we hear stories and see stories like that, I mean, my goodness. God took an ex-drug addict to help plant a church and now leads you and I in worship. I mean, that is amazing. I mean, God is just crazy about us. He just loves you so much. And I don't know if you needed to hear that today. You probably did because I did. Like, he loves you so much that he will go to great lengths to make sure you don't put a period on your story. If there's anything that we can gain and glean from Jillian's testimony, it's that we should not be putting a period on our story where God puts a comma on our story. Amen? So many of us in here think that that's it. I've screwed it up too much. I can't step into all that God wants me to step into. Have you seen my resume? Like, goodness, you've put a period on your story. But you and I are the ones that put a period there. God puts a comma right there. There's a trend in Jillian's story. That trend is the community trend. As you heard her story unfold, you heard that she previously had a community that was in part helping shape some of her decisions in life. And when you heard her story of conversion and salvation, what did she do? She called him up and be like, I love you, but you've got power in my life and I can't hang. <laughs> Sorry, I got to take a little break from you. It's amazing the power of community. And there are so many people this morning that are in this room that have a story like Jillian's story. There's a community in your life right now that is perhaps drawing you away from Jesus. Usually I tell teenagers this, teach teenagers this principle in this way. And since we're all a bunch of old teenagers, I'll do it anyway here. You know, show me your friends and I'll show you your future, right? And that doesn't mean that all of a sudden you abandon your non-Christian friends. It means that your best friends that influence you the most ought to be people that love Jesus too, if not more than you do. So that they draw you and point you and direct you back to Christ. Jillian made a sacrifice when she called her friends. There's probably people in this room that need to make some phone calls this afternoon. There's probably people that are playing church right now that are sitting in this room that love coming on Sundays. But the rest of the week, I'll hang with my crew. I'll get high. I'll get hammered. I just want to have a good time, Luke. And what I'm saying is that that community is in part shaping who you are as a person. 
And if you are a Christian, there's this wisdom principle that you and I need to adopt right now, and it's this. We need to know the difference between the community we are on mission to and the community we are on mission with. It's just wisdom. It's just simple wisdom. If the people you are hanging with right now influence you more negatively away from Jesus than you are able to influence them positively towards Jesus, it's time to find new friends. And I know that people don't like to hear that, but there's a lot of things that we don't like to hear that Jesus has to say, right? Get behind me, Satan. Either get on board or get out of the way. I mean, Peter took the brunt of this. And what I'm saying is that in Jesus' grace and mercy for our lives, he wants to link us up with his family. The reason this is so important is because the community that you and I choose to invest in will shape who we become. There's no other alternative. You're either shaped by the community that you're being shaped by negatively, or you're shaped by the community that's shaping you positively. There's, there's no, like, middle thing. Like, even people that fly solo that are lone rangers. You're shaped by something or someone. So the community you choose to invest in is so critical. And let me just say this to the lone rangers or the, you know, the solos in here. Like, your, your, your faith is private. It's just not, it's personal. It's just not private. Like, you were never meant to follow Jesus as a lone ranger. You were always meant to follow Jesus in a community. And I know that there's lots of people in here that are afraid to get involved in community because of fear. This little narrative that you and I tell ourselves about the future, right? Oh, I'm not going to be accepted. I'll be rejected because they won't accept me for who I am. I'm going to get hurt like I was at the last church. Let me just say this. Those are little narratives of fear, and you and I are terrible at predicting the future. Give God a chance. I mean, my goodness, there's so many ways at this local church to get involved in community. How about the outposts, our communities on mission that serve as a social network, too? Like the, the Rooted experience. We have a new Rooted pastor now, Jane Huber. She offers Rooted three times a year. It's a 10-week discipling experience. It's amazing. We just finished up. There's the weekend volunteer teams. You know how many people it takes to run church on the weekend? Lots of peoples. Lots of them. Lots of them. Like, we need lots of people in the lobby for guest experiences, for children's ministry, for student ministry, for the tech team. We need lots of people. Lots of them. And there's so many ways. Oh, did you know that we're starting four new churches next year? <laughs> the need for involvement investment is at an all-time high. How about the Michigan Road location? We just closed on the building two weeks ago. It's awesome. It's so cool. And I'm personally super invested in this because I'll be transitioning to be that location's pastor as Josh still is our lead pastor of all locations. I've got a graphic here for you. We've got two vision call-out meetings in December. If you want to get involved in something brand new, fun, and exciting, another Mercy Road Church location, we've got Saturday, uh, December 8th at 6.15 right after service. We've got Sunday, December 30th, after the third service on Sunday morning. Uh, join me so I can communicate all of the opportunities for you to get involved at this new church location. The opportunities and needs are endless. And then pre-launch services will begin on January 19th on Saturday nights as the Michigan Road location owns the Saturday night service. Oh, and by the way, the location that we just bought is full of stuff that we don't need or want, so we're going to have a big old auction. So if you put up that next graphic for me there. So Sunday, December 9th at 12 p.m., Josh is going to send you straight from church over to our new location so you can walk the building, make some bids on some stuff that you might want to use for your business or home or whatever. There's a preview for that on Thursday, December 6th from 4 to 7. There's the address. Come. All the money obviously goes back right back to the church and the mission. 
It's going to be awesome. Get involved. Get involved. So here's what I want to ask you. If fear is what's getting in the way of you getting involved, the opposite of fear, the thing that you need is faith. Putting your hope in Christ and trusting that he's more in control of you than you are in control of you. It's simple as this. Ten seconds of faith could mean 20 years of friendships. 20 years. Think about that for a moment. All it would take for you is 10 seconds to get on board with an outpost or sign up for Rooted or join a weekend volunteer team or whatever, join a new church location. And that could mean 20 more years of friends in your circle. Now that's cool. But you will have to look at your story, look at your sentence, trust that God has not put a period on your story, but puts a comma there. And our job is to discover what's after that comma. Church, what is after your comma? What comes next? What comes next? Because it's something awesome. And if you're not involved in community, you're missing out. Because it's super fun and exciting. And it's so fun to be on mission together and worship Jesus together and be discipled together. Who are, uh, who are my married men in the room? Raise your hand. My married dudes. I show that ring proudly, right? All of us married guys know one thing. When you marry the girl, you marry her family. Am I right, dudes? Yeah, amen, right? Especially on the holidays. Like, you marry the woman, you marry her family. Guess what? When you commit your life to Christ, you commit your life to his family. It's a package deal, guys. And it's sweet. And if you're not involved in community, you're missing the wild, crazy family parties that are happening all the time. Don't miss it. Don't miss the community that comes in God's family. Okay, I want to close, but I want to close this way. I want to talk to two different groups of people that are in this room right now. One group are people that have been walking with God for a long time. And that group of people love Jesus Perhaps they've gotten used to plain church, you know, treating it like listianity, just checking off the box as long as I look the part, I'm good to go. I want to talk to you for a second. You've been spectating from the sidelines too long now. God did not call you to spectate. God called you to serve. Move from a spectator to a servant. That is your next step. My fellow brother or sister in Christ, move from a spectator to a servant. Get involved. Life is too short to miss it. Get involved. And to my friend in the room who's far from God, maybe you're visiting for the weekend, you're like, why did I ever agree with my family to come to church? There's no coincidences in the kingdom of God. You are here on purpose. Place your trust in Christ. You've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. So which of those two groups do you fall into? Because there's something next for each one of us. We've never made it. We've never plateaued. We've never matured to the fullest that we will mature. There's something next. So here in a quiet moment, I want to do this. I'm going to ask everyone to close your eyes. And bow your heads. And ask Jesus a very simple, basic, but powerful question. And you're going to ask this question. And I'm going to allow some free space for him to respond to you. 
so that he might instruct you on what is next. I want you to ask Jesus this question. Jesus, what comes after my comma? Ask him. Christian following Jesus, ask him, what's next for me? What comes after my comma, Jesus? If you don't trust Christ as your personal Savior, just whisper to him, I don't know you, but I want to. I trust you. Show yourself to me. What comes next? Jesus, this is our prayer. Christ, I pray that we would have the courage to to acknowledge that none of us are without mission in our lives. You've called each one of us to stop up and step into something next. Thank you for Jillian's story and how it compels us to look at our life story and try to discern what's after our comma. Ultimately, we know that following you costs us everything but it's worth it all. So I pray for us as a church body that we might step into whatever it is that you spoke to each one of us when we asked you what comes next. God, give us a heart of worship. We want to worship you in this moment, Jesus. We love you. We say these things in your name.